uh, and it starts at verse 18. And this is what it says. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your um, credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Uh, people who are now worshipping in the church, it's, most Sundays are like the United Nations, to be really honest. You know, we have Hong Kongers, Ukrainians. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had 14 Brazilians. I didn't know there were that many Brazilians in Solihull. Uh, but uh, God is bringing these people to us. And, sorry, Matt is really honing in on how he can help integrate uh, into the church and how, what we can learn from the wide Christian experience which they bring to our church. I'm sure you've been enjoying going through First Peter. It's an incredible book with much to teach us on the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, uh, our calling to follow him, and uh, practical examples of what that will mean to us as his believers, as his followers. And while it's been written to a very different culture and generation, uh, there's still much that is relevant for 2023, and I hope we'll see that as we go on. I've given the title to my talk this morning, Radicalized, because that's a word that's used quite a bit today. Is it switched on? There we go. Thank you. It's been defined as causing someone to adopt a radical position on a political or social issue. And almost always today has very strong negative connotations as the person or group that's been radicalized often resort to violence to promote their cause. But I would want to apply that word to the, as a title to the passage that Paul read to us. Because in the situation we've read, we see how Peter is telling the slaves that they are to accept unjust, even harsh treatment for the sake of Christ. And that would involve them being radically different from those around them, from even their own culture. If they're able to follow through on what Peter has said, it would be accurate to describe them as being radicalized, totally different, though a key difference would be that their response would not lead to violence. Mark Twain once said, 
It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. And this passage is one of those. It's easy to understand. There's nothing too complicated in it, but so much more difficult to put into practice. So to set this context, let's take a quick whiz through and look at what you've been looking at in previous weeks. The Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write to these people throughout the northern parts of what is modern-day Turkey, calling them to be radically different from their neighbours and friends as they'd been given a new birth, a living hope, an inheritance that would never perish, spoil or fade through the death and resurrection of Christ. This new way of living would be marked by holy lives as they reflected what God was like to their neighbours. The difference would be so marked that they would appear as exiles or foreigners. They were different. They were a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And as believers, when we read through what we've, this eternal calling that God has put in our lives, it should thrill our hearts, warm our spirits as we consider what we've been called to. The end result for these early believers and for us is, Peter says, that really they were aliens, strangers, the word sometimes translated as pilgrims, in their home culture. When we go in another, to another country on holiday or on business or to live, we feel different. The language is different, the food's different, the greetings are different, road signs, everything is different. We feel ill at ease, at least at the beginning. We don't feel we fit in. Everything is strange. Being a follower of Jesus means that we should be different from those who don't claim to follow him. We are aliens, exiles, strangers, even in our own culture, because this should be shown possibly by how we speak but certainly by our reactions, our values, our attitudes, how we respond when things go wrong are key indicators. To show how the people were very different, Peter hones in on a single word, the word submission. And again, not a word that's popular in today's society. He identifies four main areas where submission needs to be worked through. The first one is towards those in authority over us in government. I think you've looked at that last week or a previous week. The one we're looking at today, towards unjust owners, bosses in the workplace. Paul said, I was his boss. I'm sure I didn't fit into that category at all. <laughs> Thank you, Paula. I'll slip you a fiver afterwards. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not doing this one next week or whenever you're doing it. Relationships in the home between husbands and wives. And then finally, attitude between believers within the church. Peter is practical throughout. He doesn't just talk about submission. He then spells out different areas of life that affect each of us and how that should work for us. 
This morning, as I said, we're concentrating on submission in the workplace. Why do we find submission so difficult? Well, firstly, Peter talks about the internal reasons, our own sinful desires. Other New Testament passages call this our carnal nature, which still wages war against us as we try to follow Christ. Basically, we want to put ourselves first. We want our way. We want our desires to be followed, not anyone's else, anyone else's. They're called sinful desires. I've heard the word sin defined as shove off God, I'm in charge, no need of help. Isn't that basically what sin is saying to God? I heard the story about a pastor in the US who announced one Sunday that the following week he was going to announce from the church publicly the the man in the church who had given him the most bother, the most trouble since he had become the pastor there. And with much anticipation and not a little bit of trepidation, big crowd turned up the following Sunday. The rumor went that one of the deacons brought his own solicitor with him. Of course, the pastor got up, and who did he name? He named himself. He was the one who had caused the most trouble to him in the church. Because we know, excuse me, in Isaiah we read that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. We all know what goes on in the inner recesses of our hearts, the internal, our own sinful desires. Then there's the external pressures, accusations and threats from the world around. Often it's the majority of people and they have no problem in treating us unjustly, taking our words and misconstruing them, treat, even treating us harshly. So for those two reasons, Peter says, submission will be difficult. But submission is much more than our relationship with another person or to a situation. It is everything to do with our relationship with God. Peter draws this radical and difficult conclusion. Christians who would live in reverence fear of God should follow the path of submission. And he follows on by saying that submission will not be easy. It's very likely that it will lead to suffering. Peter doesn't try to sugarcoat what submission will be like. He is deeply personal and practical. Because the slaves that he was addressing, this was an especially difficult task. They were owned by their masters. They had no rights. The master could even murder them if he so chose. However, I think I'm fairly safe in saying that there's no one here today in slavery, even though there is modern-day slavery. Hopefully it hasn't encroached into Alton Baptist Church. But if no one here is in slavery, then why is this passage of any relevance to us? Is submission and suffering still an unconditional and unavoidable 
consequence for anyone following Jesus in 2023, whether that's impaired employment or simply coming into contact with situations and people. Peter draws out from this passage how this idea of submission, which will lead to suffering, is relevant to every believer in every generation and every situation under four main headings. Because we're following the example of Christ, what Christ's suffering accomplished, the Christian's call to suffering, and what suffering achieves for the followers of Christ. What is the purpose in suffering? So firstly, the example of Christ. We're well aware that Christ was treated with injustice, and rejection, which led to unimaginable suffering culminating in his death on the cross. How did he respond when he fit, met such suffering? When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Verse 23, the natural reaction to suffering usually follows one of three main responses. Retaliation, retreat, or passive cowering. I suspect each of us have followed one of those courses, or maybe all three at different times. But that wasn't how Jesus responded. These slaves are asked to respond differently to harsh and unjust treatment from their owners because they're following the example of a different master. It was not out of the fear of punishment from their owners that they were to follow this pathway of submission, but out of reverent fear for God, so that they, we might be free, might die to sins, and live for righteousness. Secondly, what did Christ's suffering accomplish? Well, Peter takes us into the Old Testament. He quotes quite a bit from Isaiah, and he shows how Christ's suffering led to his death, which brought our salvation. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You are like sheep going astray. And the background for Isaiah's prophecy and Peter's teaching is the symbolism of sacrifice that God had appointed for Israel. Sin was pictured as a burden to be placed upon the head of the sacrificial animal before it was killed. Death was a penalty for sin. The sacrificial animal died in the place of the sinner who confessed his sins with his hands on the head of the animal. And this action graphically pictured the transfer of the weight of his sin from himself to the substitute. Isaiah's suffering servant, that is identified as Jesus, offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. He was stricken with death for the transgressions of his people. His soul was made an offering for sin, and he bore the sins of many. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, Isaiah writes. That such a price should be paid by the Son who gave his life, and by the Father who gave his Son. 
illustrates the measure, the limitlessness, the unconditional love that God has for us. And Peter wants to bring that out. See, Christ didn't suffer because he had done anything wrong. He suffered because we did something wrong. So the suffering of Jesus was not a passive acceptance of injustice or mute indifference or not being able to vent anger. He actively accepted that his suffering was part of being God's will. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, we read, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, at the throne of God. See, the fact that Jesus suffered is remarkable. But the reason Jesus suffered is even more remarkable for you and for me. So why does Peter include all of this? Why does he go, when he's talking about submission and suffering, why does he go into such a lot of detail about Christ's death? I believe he was making clear that suffering that Christians experience is not a penalty for sin. Christ has suffered that in our place. The suffering that Christians have that remains is Christ's calling to us to follow in his steps sharing his reproach because there is a purpose. God has a purpose in that suffering. We're taught today to stand up for ourselves, stand up for our rights, we'll be walked over, we'll be treated as doormats. There's a Human Rights Act, a host of legislation and regulations, policies to protect us in the workplace and in society as a whole. But the way of Christ is to submit, to give up those rights at times, and that is likely to lead to suffering. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not good at suffering. I will try to avoid it if possible. I recently had to have a medical procedure and gratefully accepted all the pain relief that was on offer. No questions asked. However, we're all familiar with the sports expression of no pain, no gain. And it's the same if we want to be disciples of Jesus. It's part of God's calling on our lives. It's not random, vindictive, out of control. There's a purpose. Peter says, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called. That's the earthly part of our calling. We looked earlier at the eternal call. In 1694, Bishop um, Leighton, I'd never heard of this man, but Bishop Leighton from uh, Glasgow commented on the readiness of Christians to claim the peace of Christ while expecting no tribulation in this world. And he said, they like better, I think we could say we like better, St. Peter's carnal advice to Christians to avoid suffering, where Peter said, not so, Lord, than his apostolic doctrine to Christians, teaching them that as Christ suffered, so they likewise are called to suffering. Suffering shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also, in John 15, 21. 
Paul, writing to Timothy, said, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Suffering can take many forms. In some parts of the world, being a follower of Jesus will bring outright persecution and suffering. Today, in many parts of the world, unfortunately, that's still the case. Taking the name of Jesus brings a heavy cost. Some years ago, I was in a meeting with uh, some Iranian believers. There was a woman there in her mid-30s who had become a believer just over 10 years previously. The story she told was that when she became a believer, her infant, her husband immediately divorced her. And she had an infant daughter. This was now 10 years later. And during those 10 years, the daughter was now a young teenager. Her contact with that girl had been through infrequent, short phone calls whenever the husband permitted. Would you or I be prepared for such such sacrifice? <clears throat> Excuse me. And in the UK today, there isn't outright persecution for Christians. But your suffering might be because you're being marginalized in your faith. And certainly Christianity is being marginalized in Britain. And this can show itself in you being overlooked for a promotion or even losing your job because you won't engage in a dubious practice or agree with a certain set of beliefs or values. You may lose friendships within your family circle or there may be no obvious cause for the suffering you're going through. Your physical and mental health aren't good. Your financial situation is fragile. Your job security non-existent. Suffering is real, and the longer it goes on, the harder it is to withstand, as it brings physical, mental, emotional distress, sometimes a combination of them all. But whatever the cause of your suffering, as I've said, God has a purpose, and it doesn't have to be in vain. So what does suffering do for the follower of Christ? In the, un, in the wisdom and unconditional love of a sovereign God, there's a purpose to submission and suffering. So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Be holy, for I am holy. If we continue to trust in God and his plans for our lives, Despite our circumstances of suffering, we are becoming more like Jesus, following his example that he set. No one said it was ever going to be easy, but we can trust God. He's sovereign and in control of what comes our way, and we are in, we are in control of how we respond. Sovereign Grace Music is uh, a, a music group from the U.S., and they've taken a lot of the Psalms and made them uh, into modern songs. One verse from Psalm 90 really speaks to me on this. That goes, and all our days are held within your hands. Your perfect love and favor know no end. And this line especially, we rest within the wisdom of your plan, everlasting God. Oswald Chambers wrote this uh, 
some years ago. God doesn't make us holy in the sense of character. He makes us holy in the sense of innocence. And we have to turn that innocence into holy character by a series of moral choices. It won't just happen. We have choices to make. And those choices are continually an antagonism to the entrenchments of our natural life. There will be no progression towards holiness in our lives except as we submit to life's circumstances as a part of God's holy vocation for you and for me. Another, a long quote, and I apologize for that, but it's from a book by, again, American pastor Paul Bilheimer in this book, Don't Waste Your Sorrows. He said, notwithstanding God's benevolent purpose, when sorrow and suffering come, whether as a result of conflict over moral choices, of pain or physical illness, or of disappointing circumstances, it is easy to fall into a spirit of resentment and self-pity which produces frustration and depression. When this occurs, one is defeated in his spiritual life and character deteriorates. He has wasted his sorrow. What God permitted in order to wean him, wean us from self-love and self-worship, and therefore for his spiritual growth, has resulted in loss. So I stop this morning and say, what suffering are you experiencing at present? Let's start within your work life, because that's what the passage was uh, focusing on. Is it a harsh boss who never recognizes the effort you put in? Job insecurity, boring, demeaning work, being asked to partake in dubious practices, mean-spirited, non-supportive colleagues, impossible targets? The slaves to whom Peter was writing would have experienced all of those in bucket loads, yet were still asked to submit as are we, to bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God and we are conscious of God. God will use the circumstances, can use the circumstances, to work character in our lives as his purpose is to make us more like Christ. Christ's submission doesn't only show his submission to the Father's will, it also shows his confidence in his Father's righteous judgment his confidence that his Father will judge rightly. Can we say the same about ourselves? We're not slaves, but in a work relationship, what are some of the ways that you can practically show submission? Do as you're told, not maybe what you want to do. Treat your manager with respect even if you don't think they deserve it, including on social media. Serve well, even if our employer is disrespectful, dishonorable, unkind, unreliable, maybe even harsh, because ultimately it's Christ we're serving. Giving 100% whether our boss is present or occupied. Total honesty with regard to timekeeping, our employer's property, expenses claims, the company's reputation, and make God's will our top priority in our life and work. And that means in everything we do, 
we do ultimately for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel. No one said it would be easy. But not all suffering comes within an employment context. But the same principles will apply. And the suffering that you may be going through in the context of broken relationships, failing health, unemployment, unreasonable neighbours, financial difficulties, fraught family relationships, wayward children, whatever it is, the same kind of response is called for. Resting in the wisdom of God's plans. God knows about your situation, my situation. He's everlasting. He's with us in that situation. He wants to use it to make us more like Jesus. Have you ever tried asking God to change you rather than changing your situation? Asking what would Jesus say or do in those circumstances? Seek to be a peacemaker. Show love. Don't hold a grudge or return evil for evil. And give yourself and your circumstances over to the sovereign and loving God. In chapter 5 of this book, Peter writes, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, think, think of these words, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And to finish, another quote from Bilheimer. Suffering, triumphantly accepted, slays the self-life, delivers one from self-centeredness, and frees one to love. Peter ends the section with a beautiful, reassuring image. Once the slaves were pictured as straying sheep, but through Christ they have returned to the shepherd and overseer. What an incredible truth and privilege. The slaves were at the bottom of the social ladder, but their lives and circumstances were being overseen by the good shepherd who had laid down his life for them and was intimately interested in every detail of their lives. Our living God, our everlasting God, is the same today and is showing the same care and love to us every day as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Let us ask him to radicalize us through our responses of submission, even if it leads to sufferings, as that will make us more like Christ. Amen. Paul.